Welcome back to Soldier Dog. Chapter 9, January 7th, 1918, Essex. Ten new recruits sat on a series of wooden benches ranged around a dais in front of a window, waiting for the colonel. Their rough hands, frugal speech, and broad faces suggested they were countrymen, gillies maybe, or farmers, or huntsmen. Through the window, in the last of the day's light, Stanley saw two fields striped with orderly rows of wooden kennels. The messenger dog school was bounded to the east by the sea, to the north by the river. An immense sky dominated the low-lying land, all reclaimed salt marsh, interrupted by hedgerows of scrub elm, ditches and dikes, and then the tidal mud flats. A red admiral, early to arrive, was resting on the window ledge. On its folded wings, Stanley saw the flashes of orange and red. Stanley would let it out, could do it quickly before the colonel came in. He rose and moved toward the window. He captured the butterfly, feeling in the bowl of his palm, its furry thorax and the panicked batting of its powerful wings. Brisk steps sounded along the corridor. Stanley lifted the sash window and stretched out his arm. The door opened and closed. There were footsteps behind him and Stanley was joined at the window. He opened his palm and glimpsed the black and white tracery of the Admiral's wings as it looped and curved away. Do you know that tiny wingspans no more than seven centimeters? The voice was entranced and gentle. He weighs perhaps less than two rose petals but if he hasn't overwintered here, he'll have been all the way to Spain or France. Stanley turned to face a silver-haired man with a noble nose and stern periwinkle eyes. He saw, too, the colonel's smile waver, his eyes sharpen, and his arms fall in a gesture of anger and despair. The colonel turned abruptly. Stanley remembered Quigley's taunts about his age, remembered the McManus brothers and their fatherly watchfulness and realized, hurrying to his bench, that they all knew at a glance that he was underage. Colonel Richardson took the dais and began to speak, his manner courteous but firm. Gentlemen, you are here on probation. I accept only men of the highest character. It is your solemn obligation to display only the qualities you'd like to see in your dogs. Because a dog that lives with a man of pluck and courage will itself become plucky and courageous. The colonel's eagle eyes scanned the room, boring into the heart of each recruit, weighing him and assessing him, but always overlooking Stanley. Stanley sat up straight, defiant and intent. I'll be training you and you'll be training the dogs. You must forget anything that you've ever learned. I don't want experience. I simply want a natural love of dogs. Stanley watched the colonel, challenging him to meet his eyes. He, Stanley, more than anyone here, had a natural love of dogs. He would not be treated as a child. Your dogs are new here too. Since arriving, they've had 24 hours isolation and 48 hours rest. They have been dipped and disinfected by Macy, our veterinary head nurse. 
They've been given a leather collar, a tin messenger cylinder, a brass tag engraved with war messenger dog, and a number. As the colonel paused, Stanley heard the thudding of heavy guns from the nearby artillery practice ground. You'll each be allocated three dogs. Each dog will have one master. One man, and only one man, will be his master. You will make each and everything about his working day a pleasure and a joy to him. You'll teach him to be a soldier, to have discipline, and sangfroid. If a dog is lazy, greedy, or cowardly, if he lacks focus or concentration, he will be returned home. Those of you that do well will, when the time comes, serve a fortnight at a time, 12 hours a day, in the frontline trenches with your dogs. Still, the colonel was avoiding Stanley, though the boy kept his eyes firmly fixed on him, willing the colonel to meet his gaze. Colonel Richardson faced the line of keepers, at his heels a bewildered rabble of dogs, some scrawny, some stout, some tall, whimpering like new children on their first day at school. In the field beyond, chained to their kennels, the experienced dogs, the old hands, snouts held high, surveyed the new recruits, both the men and the new dogs, with silent skepticism. Stanley would be the last to get his dogs. Starting at the far end of the line, Lance Corporal Birdwood, known to the men as Birdie, had begun to distribute them. Birdie and the Colonel were nearing the end of the line. There were two men left to go, Trigger Doyle and Stanley, but only four dogs left in the Colonel's hands. Were there not enough dogs to go around? Perhaps they'd each have only two dogs. A racy-looking Airedale was still there, along with two very tall dogs and a teddy bearish sheepdog. Which would be his, and which would be Doyle's? Stanley glanced sideways at the short, wiry Doyle. His complexion was rough, but despite that, and his confidence, he was perhaps as young as Stanley himself. Watching him, Stanley wondered if perhaps Doyle had stood on a pile of books in the recruiting office. Last night, he'd introduced himself as Trigger, Trigger Doyle, and he'd winked at Stanley with a complicity that Stanley didn't quite like. Dog number 2154, said Richardson. The colonel cast a paternal eye over the sheepdog Birdie was giving to Trigger. Pharaoh, he's got brains. That big square skull has plenty of room for brain power. Stanley looked at the rough and tumble dog at the intelligent beam of his eyes beneath the grizzled fringe and felt a prick of envy. He looked at the remaining dogs. What would be left for him? Not the Airedale. Bertie was already handing him to Trigger. But the huge brindled dog was still there, and so was the tall Wheaton one. This is Bandit, an Airedale, the colonel was saying. He'll be a soldier through and through, spirited, loyal, and ridiculously brave. Stanley glanced at the gallant, dashing bandit, then his eyes shot back to the colonel, his heart in his mouth. Bertie was giving Trigger another dog, the handsome, bearded, wheaten one. Stanley bit his lip. There was only to be one for him, the brindled one, striped like a tiger in brown and gold. 
there were not enough dogs to go around, and the colonel had picked Stanley to receive only one. That truculent giant had been picked especially for him. His chance of getting to France would be hopeless with just one dog. With that dog. Richardson moved along to Stanley. Stanley straightened up and squared his shoulders, defying the colonel to look at him. The colonel read from his ledger, Bones. Dog number 2153, said Bertie. Bones, a Great Dane, a headlong mountain of a dog, this one. Well, do your best. It'll be hard to win his trust. He was a guard dog. Then he was abandoned, like so many others, because of rationing, because his owners couldn't feed him. He's a suspicious animal, mistrustful. He'll be a difficult case, but try to channel that ferocity of his. The colonel's eyes finally rose from Bones to Stanley, then shifted to the middle distance. Bertie handed Stanley a lead as the colonel continued. You see, I'm forced to take whatever comes. I just can't get enough good dogs. He took a long, sad breath. I'm still applying for more. And, well, they might still come in. He looked again at Bones and said, Bones might well be unsuitable for this kind of work. Danes make better tracking dogs than messenger dogs. But, well, let's see. You know, if a dog loves you, he'll do anything for you. The colonel was on the point of saying more when he looked again directly at Stanley and paused. With a sorrowful shake of his head, he thought better of whatever he was going to say. Turned to Bertie. And as they walked away, Stanley caught the drift of his whispered words. It's not right. So young. Still shaking his head, the colonel made his way back to the center of the line. Fidelity. Courage. Honor. These are the qualities we hope to find in a dog. These and the homing instinct. Now, this instinct exists in all dogs, but the cultivation of it will form the colonel of your training here. Stanley looked at Bones. The showy black and brown brindle of Bones's coat had the dangerous sheen of a savage and unpredictable jungle animal. Headstrong, thought Stanley, seeing the deep jaws, the incisors that could rip anything to shreds. Stanley wondered whether he did, after all, have a natural love of dogs, because if he had, it seemed to have deserted him now. It was the bulk and heft of bones that was so off-putting. Daz dogs had always been as light as shadows, and he could feel nothing but revulsion for this drooling giant. As the colonel spoke, a self-important young plover with brownie-gray winter plumage trotted urgently across the sand a few feet away. Bones cocked his large head, brows raised appealingly, ears pricked, all that surly truculence suddenly evaporated. He raised a stout forepaw as if to play. The dog had no more sense than a skittle, thought Stanley, exasperated, watching Bones paw the ground in invitation to the plover. The bird trotted off. Bones's head drooped, his eyes blinking mournfully in the direction of the now distant plover. It amused Stanley that Bones looked marvelously ferocious, but really was so gentle. Silly Bones. The triangular ears collapsed, 
downcast against his cheeks. That head was so expressive. The fleeting changes from surly suspicion to playfulness to disappointment also easily read, and Stanley was surprised to feel a glimmer of affection for this clumsy, playful giant. Richardson was still speaking. Dogs are four times faster than humans. They can swim across shell holes and canals. They can find their way at night and run as fast at night as by day. They are not shell shy. They can exercise the homing instinct within only one week of arriving at a new area, picking up one individual scent and following it, despite thousands of competing smells, across ground that is impassable for horse, man, or machine. Stanley smiled to see yet another sudden change in bones, now sitting as tall and still as an imperial statue. Stanley noticed the surprising majesty of him, the acute sense he had of his own dignity. Bones, whispered Stanley. The dog's high, close-set ears tightened so that they touched each other, twin sails atop his square skull. He smacked his jowls and blinked up at Stanley, then shuffled his haunches back to sit on Tant Stanley's toes, nestling against Stanley's legs. The dog must want to be with you. If he wants to be with you, Richardson was saying, then he will be faithful, courageous, and honorable. Not only that, but he'll be pulled as though by magnetism through falling bombs, through hurricanes of fire and fields of rolling tanks by his longing to be with you. If he loves you, he will rush home to you, even through blizzards of flying steel. Flying steel. Stanley took a deep breath and whispered to Bones, we will do it together and show them all, you and I. The dog cast his head around, saw Pharaoh, set his jaws, and began a deep, grumbling growl. A little intimidated, Pharaoh's large, soft paws edged backwards. Stanley smiled. Bones was guarding him, all of his great weight now leaning as heavily and defensively as a bulwark against Stanley's legs. Stanley braced himself against the weight of the dog, a little charmed by the dog's ready acceptance of his new master and his determination to protect him. Yes, he breathed, you will be a faithful, courageous, and honorable. He looked up at the colonel and added with a flint of anger, or we will never get to France, and to Tom. The days raced by. Each day, the 6.30 reveal was followed by roll call at 7, then breakfast. At eight, the keepers groomed the dogs. At nine, there was a general parade of staff, trainers, orderlies, keepers, and highly excited dogs. The rest of the day was spent on fitness exercises and the homing instinct, run with only one hour free before the evening lecture. After three weeks of fitness training, the first of the war training exercises, the firing infantry had been introduced this would accustom the dogs to rifle fire. Two days ago, there'd been just one gun. Yesterday, two. Today, there'd be six infantrymen. Stanley joined the line of keepers standing a couple hundred feet away from a row of infantry. The colonel's orderlies approached to lead the dogs away to their far side. At Bertie's whistle, 
the dogs would be released, the infantry would fire blanks, and the dogs were to run into the firing line and through to their keepers. Bones's rumbling purr cranked up. The closer the orderly came, the louder his growl. Stanley cuffed him around the ears. Bones looked up briefly, clamping his jaw in injured pride before turning away, unable to suppress a final warning growl. You big sillies, Stanley said, grinning. Don't be so suspicious. Bones's round eyes shot up at his master, confused, then back to the oncoming danger. No, Bones, no. We're going to walk through the village again this afternoon, and we'll keep on and on until you learn not to guard me, but to come home to me. Bones shuffled back against Stanley. Rump on Stanley's feet, head against his hip bone, intermittent rumbling still escaping. Stanley handed the lead over to the orderly. Leave, Stanley commanded. Bones looked up, mystified. Was Stanley really sure those chestnut eyes asked? Was it not madness to go off with someone else? Leave. Bones leaped up good-naturedly and loped away with his springy, easy gait to take his place beyond the infantry. Stanley scuffed the grass with his boot. Yesterday, Bones had advanced, then reversed, casting around for a way to Stanley which avoided the infantry. When he'd found none, the pack instinct had tugged him forward with the other dogs into the storm of blanks. Bones was willful, but he must do what is asked of him, not what he thought was best. A whistle blew. The infantry burst into fire. It was hard in the smoke and confusion to see what was happening, but there, there was the first dog already on the near side. Stanley searched the flurry of dogs tearing home. No bones. Now that the smoke was beginning to lift, Stanley could see the line of orderlies beyond the riflemen. Bones wasn't among them, nor among the rush of tail-wagging dogs reading their keepers. Stanley felt a flicker of irritation that all Doyle's dogs had arrived home. Where had Bones gone? Stanley whirled around and Bones hurled himself at him, breathless and slobbering and frantic with pride, looking as though he might vault into the boy's arms. Bones had gone the long way around, behind the shed, avoiding the gunfire, coming up at Stanley from behind. But Stanley saw the pride in his shining black-rimmed eyes, and his exasperation melted at the sheer charm of the dog, at his childlike exuberance. Sit, commanded Stanley with his hand only. Bones chomped and slathered and reluctantly sat, waiting for his reward. Stanley kept his hand raised. There'd be no reward this time. Bones snuffled Stanley's pocket for his tidbit. No, said Stanley. You'll go back and do it again until you get it right. Bones was taken forward again and again, but each time avoided the guns. Stanley's tone grew firmer. Once again, Stanley signaled for an orderly to collect bones. All the other men and dogs had finished, leaving only Stanley, the orderly, bones, and the infantry in the gathering dusk. Wait, Stanley called, racing up behind the orderly. I'll go with him. I'll walk through the guns with him. I'll show him myself what he must do. Are you sure, Keeper Rider? Stanley braced himself as he looked towards the sinister barrels of the rifles and nodded. 
He didn't want to, but he would, to show bones. They took their place beyond the infantry. The orderly blew a whistle, released Bones's lead. Come, Bones, come, follow me. Stanley started off at a run. The blanks and the noise wouldn't hurt him any more than they'd hurt Bones. Stanley tensed as the guns burst into fire, but forced himself onward into the red flashes of red and noise, Bones loping cheerfully along at his side. They'd reached line and gone through. As they reached their post, Stanley raised his hand, then held out some chopped liver, saying, Good boy, good. Now go, Bones, on your own now, the way I showed you. Last time, shouted the infantry officer, checking his watch as the orderly collected Bones. The dog took his place. Stanley kept his eyes on him, willing Bones to do what was asked. Come, Bones, come, he breathed. The whistle blew and Bones was released. Bones paused, forepaw raised and hesitant, his expressive head cast in an unusually thoughtful attitude. Bones, thought Stanley. Smiling was not a dog much given to thoughtfulness. Bones was loping forward now, not step by trembling step as the other dogs had run into the guns, but with playful, headlong nonchalance. That evening, the colonel sought Stanley out in the canteen and told him that he must continue for another week on the firing jill, while the other men progressed to the heavy guns. Bones had to be very clear, the colonel said, what was expected of him. After all, they'd gone through that day. Stanley gritted his teeth. Yes, sir, Stanley said as gamely as he could manage. He wouldn't be beaten. He would do whatever it took. Stanley's personal frustration was echoed in the prevailing mood of the country. The new year had brought new depths of gloom and despair. The Hun had come back after Cambrai with the tiger's pounce, and now those church bells looked premature and foolish. Day after day went by in this way until the colonel signaled with a forced and silent nod to move them on to the heavy guns. Bones was used to the distant thundering of the guns, but today he'd be no more than 12 feet away from them and must remain calm and still as they pounded away. Stanley stood waiting with Bones, his pockets full of chopped liver, ready to distract the dog if he took fright at the heavies. Bones was alert, his close-set ears pricked high. Stanley eyed the 18-pounders nervously. At a signal, the gunners burst into fire, and Stanley held his hands up against the deafening roar. Bones launched his entire bulk at Stanley as though to leap into his arms. Boy and dog fell together, tangled on the damp grass. Bones trying to bury himself beneath Stanley, the round, rattling underneath them. But now Bones was snuffling at the liver in Stanley's pocket. Stanley laughed despairingly disentangled himself, and sat up. Bones let a distracted growl escape in the direction of the guns, then nosed again at Stanley's pocket. Big silly, Stanley said. Sit. Bones sat, growling sporadically at the guns, chains of saliva swinging greedily from his jowls. Stanley fed him a tidbit. Good boy, he kept whispering. 
On and on went the hurricane of ear-scorching fire. Only bones among the fretful, unsettled animals sat firm, head up, highly conscious of his own majesty, and dreaming of raw liver. After another week, Stanley and Bones moved on to bomb drill. As they joined the circle of men and dogs around a deep pit, Richardson addressed the keepers. This is the third exercise in preparation for no man's land and is designed to accustom the dogs to mortar bombs. At my first whistle, the orderlies will throw raw meat into the pit. At my second, they'll throw dummy mortar bombs onto the surrounding area. At my third, you will release your dogs. This training will be very gradual. Don't speak roughly to your dogs. If a dog fails, take him back to try again. And if he does it well, if he eats from the pit, reward him. Stanley eyed the vicious-looking grenades the orderlies held. He looked at Bones sitting statue still. Next to Bones were Trigger Doyle and his dogs, keeping, like everyone else, a respectable berth around Bones. Stanley liked Trigger, liked that Trigger took everyone as they came, not minding that Stanley didn't talk much. Trigger said he worked as a ghillie, but Stanley wasn't sure. Thought there was something raggedy, perhaps, about Trigger's morals. More poacher than ghillie, Stanley thought to himself. Still, he liked Trigger. A whistle went and the horse flesh was thrown into the pit. At once, the circle of dogs, though still to heel, grew restless. Bones' snout quivered, but he remained sitting, awaiting Stanley's command. A few minutes passed, and now he began to lose his self-control. Half rising and turning, half sitting, he looked at Stanley, reproachfully cocking his head and turning another circle, still crouching, saliva glittering in the sun and swirling out like the chains of a merry-go-round. It was taking all of Stanley's strength now to hold him back. Trigger watched Stanley laughing, but Stanley thought that Trigger was perhaps a tiny bit jealous, too, of the majestic bones. Sit, bones. Richardson was speaking. The older dogs will do the training, and you'll again see the pack instinct at work. Your dogs would rather brave the unknown, in this case, the grenades, than let other dogs get all the meat. He smiled, put his whistle to his mouth, and blew. The orderlies, standing between the keepers and the pit, lit their fuses and threw their grenades. Get on, Stanley whispered to Bones, slipping his collar. The fuses took more, no more than five seconds to burn. Then came the ear-splitting noise. No smoke, no flashes, just noise. Bones was halfway to the pit when he whipped around. Stanley raised a hand to stop him. The dog's ears were pricked, his tail lifted like a saber, his coat bristling at the neck. Already, the experienced dogs were through the grenades, hurling themselves into the pit, flinging themselves onto the meat. Some of the new dogs, too. Trigger's deerhound, Gypsy, was in already, others following more cautiously. Bones growled again in the direction of the explosions, placing himself firmly between his master and the bombs. They won't hurt me. Don't worry about me. Get on, Bones. Get on. Bones hesitated, then started forward on his cat-like paws, his springy step turning to a bounding run like the bouncing gait of a thoroughbred horse. The dog was fearless. 
It was just his instinct to guard that formed his biggest challenge. Later that afternoon, Stanley scrubbed the kennel as Bones waited outside, muscular as a prize fighter, proud as a peacock, surveying his field. Everyone else had three kennels to clean, while Stanley only had the one. Trigger would say cheerfully that there'd be more dogs along soon for Stanley, but Trigger didn't really know. Stanley looked at Bones and wondered about the breeding that had produced such a specimen. Perhaps Da had been right, after all, to value purebloods above all else? Of a sudden, Stanley felt guilty that since having Bones, he'd thought so little of a soldier. Now Vision came racing back, soldier cavorting in trumpet stable, the sable eyes and porridge coat, and flooded with a raging anger. Stanley vowed he'd never, ever forgive what Da had done. Macy, the head nurse, was on his evening round inspecting the condition of each dog. Bones rose, growling high set ears pricked. Shh, it's only Macy, come to check you over. Before Macy began his inspection, Stanley would ask him the question that mattered so much. Will the colonel give me another dog, Macy? He won't send me to France with only one dog, will he? Macy hesitated, sighed, and interrupted his examination of Bones's forepaw. If Russia and Germany sign a peace treaty, Keeper Ryder, we'll be vastly outnumbered. Those troops from the Eastern Front all free, it'll be no place. I have to go, Macy, I have to go. The desperate note in his own voice stopped Stanley short and made Macy look up sharply. The colonel will have reasons of his own for not wanting you to go to France, Ryder. Bones was half growling, half purring, losing the battle for self-control, his tail poised to wag, but his hackles prickling too. There behind Macy was the colonel. Stanley rose and faced the colonel. They were the same height, and Stanley met him eye to eye. I want two more dogs, sir. The colonel paused, taken aback by Stanley's anger. When he answered, it was with anger of his own. We're short, Ryder. Now the officers have seen the dogs in action and know they can save the lives of human runners. The colonel's blue eyes sparked. Now they're crying out for them, but it's too late. I can't get any more. I've been waiting three weeks. Nothing. I've put calls on the wireless in the newspapers. We had 12,000 dogs handed in, but there are so few left. So many were shot, put down, abandoned. Stanley was thinking of Dazrant about hounds being shot. I've placed a new advertisement. The colonel handed Stanley a cutting from his pocket. We're doing everything we can. A photograph of Richardson led the news item, followed by the words, the war office requires a further gift of dogs for military purposes. Our women have given their husbands, their sons, their fathers, their brothers, and now their dogs. 12,000 dogs have been handed in so far, an overwhelming response, but still more are needed. There have been several calls on the wireless for the public to donate their dogs. We have already taken dogs from the dog homes at Leeds and Battersea. Stanley looked up impatiently, handing the cutting back. Will you send me to France with only one dog? The colonel was silent a moment. When he answered, it was with more sorrow than anger. No, Ryder. 
If only one dog, I won't. If I can help it, send you to France. And if I do, I can assure you that it will be against my every instinct. I'm under pressure to provide six dog sections at the end of the next week. But, well, however short we are of men, I cannot see that it is right to send boys so young. I can do the job, sir. I can do it as well as any man. The colonel was nodding as he knelt. Yes, he said quietly. Yes, I know you can. He reached to stroke bones. My son loved dogs. He too was a fine boy. They told me afterwards that he went over the top and on forward. When he lost his companions, still, he went forward. As he was bringing prisoners home, he was hit by his own shells. Falling short, they told me. Stanley was defeated, silenced by the colonel's raw, open grief. He, too, was so very young, Stanley. Stanley.